Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, on God. Christ is risen. Jesus. Feels like so long ago that, uh, like it's it's amazing that the church in its wisdom, we don't celebrate the resurrection for one day. We celebrate it for uh, fifty days, and it's this constant joy. Everything that we do, whether it's the the food or the hymns or the tunes or the the everything, so it's just nice that even um, what we're going to read today is related to it. Everything in our faith is related to the resurrection. Like St. Paul said, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no faith. Our, our faith means nothing without the resurrection. So today, we'll see uh, St. Peter's take on it. Um, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we're going to finish chapter 2 and, and begin um, chapter 3. So, um, if we can, I know we covered a, a little piece of this, but if we can just read from 21 to 25. Somebody can read that for us, and then we'll, we'll uh, break it down a little bit. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So a lot of what St. Peter is talking about here comes from Isaiah 53, when he talks about the suffering servant. This concept of the suffering servant is a very important uh, concept in both Judaism and Christianity. In Christianity, we focus on the suffering servant. We know that this is Christ. Even if you read the prophecies of the 6th and the ninth hour uh, of, of Good Friday, it was really intense to see, like even the Psalms, very detailed things about the crucifixion, about his suffering, about the nails, about that no bones were broken, about what happened to his clothes after. All of these things were prophecies. The, the way that the Bible teaches us, and what the orthodox way of reading the Bible, is that when you're reading the Old Testament, we look through the lens of Christ. We don't read the Old Testament as just stories, as just like information. And sometimes the Old Testament can be heavy a little bit. It could be dry. It could, but when we look through, we have to know the New Testament in order for the Old Testament to make sense. So St. Peter here is speaking to the early Christians and he's bringing up, remember a lot of them were converts from Judaism. So he's bringing up this concept of the suffering servant. He even brings up one of the verses. He says, by whose stripes you were healed. In, the, in Isaiah, he talks about the healing through the stripes. 
Stripes meaning the whips, right? The stripes, uh, what happens after you're whipped, you get stripes. So those stripes, we were healed through his stripes. So we're going to read a little bit from this to see what, what he's talking about exactly. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. One of the most important things to think about when we talk about Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, that it's not a historical moment only. Like that we, we have to always think, what does this have to do with me? Like he says it here, he says, who himself bore our sins. Okay. One question I always, like I, I, I used to have before was, okay, Christ died for who? We know he died for everyone, but whose sins did he take on the cross? Us, ours. Everyone. Everyone. Yeah. From the beginning, from Adam till. and Eve till, not just now, till the future. Right? He took on everyone's sins. And I struggled with that in the beginning because in my head I'm like, okay, I didn't even make these sins. I didn't commit them yet. So, but he died for everyone post, uh, I mean, uh, past and, 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 and future. It doesn't, it wasn't, he's not limited. Now, how do I participate in this crucifixion and resurrection? Because here, that's, this is the question, like, He's not just giving the, the Christians kind of like, he's not giving them, oh, by the way, this is what happened. Like a schedule of events. Oh, well, he was, when he suffered, uh, when, he, when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Like, he, he, he's not doing this to kind of like talk about Christ. Look what he did, like showing him off. But what is this section for? What do you think? Submission. Okay, submission in what way? I mean, he submitted himself essentially to to us in a way. Okay. Right? Like to, to sin. Okay. Well, in a way, it's yes, it's submission, but it's more of looking at Christ as the example. <clears throat> For us, we have to always... Look at Christ as the example. Everything that Christ did in, in on earth, he did for us. One, to teach us as an example. And two, that we may actually do those things with him. So for example, he when he healed the blind man. I mean, I don't know how many of us can go and heal blind people. Or, uh, or someone who's lame, or someone who's whatever. How do we... So, is, is this just... Was he just doing things just to do them? Or what was, what's our role in those miracles that he did? Okay, so he did those miracles so that people may glorify him, so that they can know he is God, and that 
that plays a role for us too. Like, this wasn't just a regular human. He was 100% human, 100% God. So yes, but what else? Like every time we see that, like we renew our faith. Yes, absolutely. So when we see this, and so that's why we even, God blesses us with seeing miracles every single day. Mm-hmm. Miracles don't have to be, uh, you know, oil coming down from an icon, right? Or he, or even as extreme as raising someone from the dead. These are not the only miracles. Miracles can be, I'm a, I woke up this morning. Right? Get to work on time in LA. Get to work on time in LA. You got through the traffic. <laughs> right? Like, these many, these little miracles, these are, they're, they're actually, it's God working through in your life. God being present in your life. Now, he does these things as examples. In these verses, he's telling us Christ was reviled, but he did not revile back. He was suffered, he did not threaten. To teach us to be a part and to, to live that same way. But more than that, what is our role in the crucifixion and resurrection? How am I living the resurrection? Because he says here, he says, who himself bore our sins in his holy body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for, for righteousness. What does that mean? Stop ourselves from sinning. Like we we die from sin, so we just we change we change our lives and to stop sinning. Absolutely. And that and in the form of like repentance and same concept. Yeah. Is is it right to think that when you um, stop yourself from sinning, that you have lightened the load on Christ when He died on the cross somehow? Or so. It's so I've heard multiple things about that. I don't think we could say that we've lightened the load because he says, uh, St. Paul says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we may have everlasting life. So it's not, it's not like there's a certain number of sins that he took on, he just took on. The, the, the pack of what sin is. Yeah. So the other thing about that is we, I, I've also heard before, you know, like every time you sin, you're uh, putting more on Christ. Mm-hmm. So the opposite way. Yeah. I, I don't think it's like that, but we have to remember that when we sin, it's separation from Him. We are, we're, we're kind of turning our back from Him. We are, remember we use the example, the dartboard example, when you're, you're aiming for the bullseye, when we sin, we're missing the mark, you're off. You're off the bullseye. So it's more of, it's not a matter of what happened on that day, like physically to him. But it's more, it's an understanding of that he died for us, but more importantly, he resurrected. And that resurrection changes our life. So when he says that we, having died to sins, might live for, right, for righteousness, we have a chance now to live for righteousness. For us, the way that we can um, be transformed 
or for us to really, like the, the difference between, let's say there's two Christians, okay? Both believe in the crucifixion and resurrection. Both read the Bible. How could, if, if one of them participates in the sacraments, lives in, like, uh, goes in the life of the church, all this stuff, partakes in communion and is every, all the sacraments. And the other doesn't. But the other one reads the Bible. The other one knows all the stories of the Bible. Which one is the one that is participating in the crucifixion and resurrection? The one that's participating. The one who's participating. That's Orthodoxy is about participation in the life of Christ. It's not a matter of knowing about Him. So everything has to be done in Christ. When we're baptized, we're, we're, we die with Christ and rise with Christ. When we're chrismated, we enter into the life of Christ. Because now I'm able to take communion and able to confess and able to have, you know, unction the sick, able to do all those things. Does that make sense? So the participation is very, very important. We have to look at the participation as that's how we can live the crucifixion and resurrection. That's how we go from, oh, this is just a historical event that we're commemorating every year to this is my, this is my life-changing event. And that's what he's talking about. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We return back as sheep to the shepherd when we, when we go and live with him. That's the only way. And, and here, shepherd and overseer uses a very specific word. When you think of shepherd, what do you think of? Like, what, what, what does a shepherd do? Okay, oversee. Thanks, Jack. What else? Protector. Protector. Guides. Like, he's in, completely in charge. He's using that word very specifically. Even in the icon of Christ, the good shepherd, he's holding, uh, uh, like, a, a shepherd's stick. Kind of like a staff. Leading his sheep. And this concept is what St. Peter's talking about. He's telling them, don't worry. Now that Christ died for us, if you participate in his suffering, in his resurrection, you will be like a sheep that's coming back, that was lost, now it comes back, that has the shepherd and overseer. You're protected now. Before, think of sheep without a shepherd. They could be anywhere. They're just kind of... Like, no purpose. They're just kind of going around. But a shepherd brings them together. Any questions about that? So, this concept of submission and, and suffering, the whole, all of chapter 2 was really focused on, on that. And I think when, when, when St. Peter is talking, he's talking from a perspective that he saw everything with Christ, he went from knowing about Christ, following Him, but there was always a disconnect. When did life change for St. Peter? 
when what when do you think St. Peter's life went from okay, I'm a disciple, I'm listening, these these are good things, I love him, everything's great, to this St. Peter that we see here? The resurrection. The resurrection. What else? Because resurrection. The day of the resurrection, what did St. Peter do? I think it was a repentance. Denying, denying Christ and so the so so that was post resurrection. Well he repented before because he the Bible yeah. says he wept he wept bitterly. Yes. So I think at that point is when But Christ renewed him through right, the three I, questions yeah, right. in St. John uh, John chapter twenty one when he asked him, Peter to love him. So this concept was very important. So the resurrection, though, what it wasn't was it enough for 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 Mary Magdalene to tell him, "Oh, he's he's not in the tomb anymore." What did he do? He went to go see. That's Saint Peter is trying to tell tell them, "Don't be passive Christians. Be proactive Christians. Be be in the life of the church. Continue. Go." Like, go to the tomb. It's not enough to just hear about it. You know, go attend the services. Go participate in these things. So that's that was the whole idea. And then obviously he had the, uh, the time in John 21 when he had those questions. Uh, Christ asked him those questions. And then Pentecost was the biggest change. You see a whole different uh, person. So we're going to get into chapter 3. Um, and chapter 3 kind of takes a, 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 a kind of a different turn. We've been talking about suffering. We're and, living. Uh-huh. We're living. Yeah, yes, yes. It kind of takes a, a little turn. Look at that. I know. So uh, in chapter in chapter 3, um, and it's, it's very old, it's always interesting to me, because remember the Bible wasn't written in chapters. This is recent. This is like, maybe, yeah, 500 years old, uh, these chapters and verses. So from here, just all of a sudden, it just seems like it's a whole different subject. But it's not. Because before he was talking about suffering and submission and the life in Christ. And now he's talking about marriage. Not saying marriage is suffering, but it's, it's, it's submission to Christ and living in the life of Christ. So, so this, he breaks it up. And St. Peter and St. Paul both write very similar um, writings about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, St. Paul does the same thing. But here, you'll notice he always, they both start by giving commands. And the church uses these two main uh, chapters and incorporates the command from these two chapters in the wedding uh, uh, crowning ceremony, the wedding ceremony. So, very organized in his thinking. Wives, da, 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 da. husband, da, 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 da. like it's very detailed and organized in his thought because God taught them and taught us that it's not. Husbands and wives, you must do this, 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 this. There's roles. And the church 
ever since the beginning of the church, roles have been very important. In anything, in sports, roles. On a, a team can have five great players. They will not do well if they don't have, if they don't know their roles. A church can be the greatest church in the world, but if they don't assign roles, things are going to fall apart. Even in the in our liturgy book, there's roles. The congregation can't say what the priest parts are. The priest part can't, priest can't respond with the deacons or the like. Everybody has roles. So the same thing in marriage. It's very important that the roles are established. And not role, I'm not talking about like who does the dishes, who does the laundry, who does, that's, that's not, that has nothing to do with what St. Peter's talking about. Maybe some people would, would have liked St. Peter to be very more specific, like who, you know, who walks the dog, like, you know, St. Peter didn't tell us who's walking the dog, but he gives us an organized way of thinking. And and we'll we'll go over we'll we'll go over the uh, the roles. But he talks to the wives, talks to the husbands, and talks to the children. They all have roles, and the roles, all of them, are pointing to Christ. You'll notice. Remember, he's talking to the early Christians, those who are living Christian lives. So he's teaching what marriage is from a Christian perspective. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just, yeah. we're just <laughs> reading, okay? And I was going to tell you about the kids and you said the children. <laughs> well, uh, because the... you said about the husband and wife and also for the kids, but you also, you said also some... Uh, the, the, the kids have, kids a, the kids have a, a role in this too. They have responsibilities. So... Everybody in this is, everybody has a, has a role. So we're going to, we'll read this part. If somebody can read. Um, I got this, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a, a woman read the first section. You read the book. She's older. So if somebody, if one of the women can read the first, from verse 1 to 6. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, <clears throat> that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid of any terror. Okay. What I really love about this is that is the second word wives likewise it's as if he was talking about it before what was he talking about Christ living a sacrificial life Christ 
dying for us and resurrecting for us. Christ bearing our sins so that we can live righteousness. This verse in verse in chapter 2, verse 22, now connect that to verse one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Because that's what he's continuing. He's not, the, he didn't just decide, uh, you know what, what are we going to talk about now? No. He continued, like, likewise, like Christ, submit. And he's saying, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. This is very different than what St. Paul says. The concept of submission here is if the wife is living a godly life, living a sacrificial life, living a resurrected life, even if her husband strays away, what happens? He comes back. He comes back. Why? Because of her conduct may be won by the conduct of their wives. That conduct is their life in Christ. This concept of, of um, um, living a godly life and letting our actions and our lifestyle be the, the example is all across the early church. St. Paul even says, we need, our hearts should be epistles. We need to be living epistles, walking around. Instead of writing letters, my actions should speak louder than words, basically. And, and, he's, and he's teaching us this. I always try to think about this. Do you think, what do you think made more of a difference when the disciples were with Christ? His words or his actions? One hundred percent. He talked about those things too. Like he talked about love. He said, "Love your like Luke chapter six talks about love your love your enemies, do good to those who curse you, bless those who spitefully use you." Like you listen to that. If you were there, like whoa. But then he showed us. I was more impacted by him showing us than the writing. The, what happens is when he shows us, the writing makes more, it's more powerful. Like if I say, uh, okay, everybody, let's try to go to church early. And then I don't go to church early. Then my words don't mean anything. If I say love our neighbors and then, or love our enemies, and then there's somebody who did something to me and I, and I like go attack them, then my words don't mean anything. So it's very clear here that he's saying conduct is very important. So the submission is not a submission of lesser. It's giving ourselves. So he says, be submissive to your own husband. But the concept of that is in my submission to Christ, I'm submissive to my husband. Now, if the husband is doing something against Christ, the church teaches us we are submissive to God first, overall. We submit to God over anything else. Does that make sense? So the submission to husbands is a reaction 
to the verses before. Now, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, and putting on fine apparel. <clears throat> Rather, let it be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is the very precious, which is very precious in the sight of God. This he gives examples of outward appearance. But this is the same thing that Christ taught. Being a Christian outwardly versus being a Christian inwardly. Outward Christian, I'm telling you everything I'm doing. You know, like, I'm showing off. I'm, uh, I'm making sure everybody sees me when I pray. Like the story of the, of the rich man and the publican. Right? Same concept. This concept of being an outward Christian versus an inward. Why do you think why do you think this is hard for us? Because this has been going on for 2,000 years. More. Ever since God gave the commandments, people were were we're struggling with outward showing of, of the relationship with God versus inward. What do you think? Well, why do you think it's hard? I think it's the way they teach it. It's treated like person. It's like woman and man. It's like obedience. You have to obey your yes. husband. It's not like you use like the God first. I heard some many times that it's like the finger. Yes. It's, yes. it's God and wife and husband. Yes. With, when some people and also the culture. Yes. Like before, yeah. this is obedience, obedience. They didn't say God first. Yes. They said like personal. So, so what about the part about the outward appearance? Like the outward showing of my my mm -hmm. my actions versus the hidden person of 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 the heart. What about it? What do you have? My question is, why is it harder? To be to, outward than to, inward? No, to be inward than outward. <clears throat> he's saying be careful to not just show. He's using here, he's using jewelry and adornment. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about he doesn't have anything against jewelry. He's saying like the it's the concept of being out, showing <clears throat> on the outward, being showing that I'm Christian, making sure people see that I'm Christian. Versus... Is it possible because we seek, like, affirmations from people? Absolutely. 100%. percent so you're just doing it by yourself. 100%. Right? This has been a problem since the beginning of time. It's like the scribe, they said they love the praise of men more than... Exactly. And that's why even when he's talking about the scribes, he talks about you're, you're making sure the out, outside of the cup is so clean, but the inside is dirty. Yeah. But... Let's think even if we're having if we have a cup and we're about to get a drink. What's more important? The inside. The outside could be all dirty, like on the outside it's okay. I mean it's not ideal, but if it's outside, if the outside of the cup is dirty, okay, that's fine. Like I will now the opposite is if the outside is very clean and the inside is dirty, I wouldn't want to drink from that. So it's this idea that we need to work on our insides. And, and it's beautiful, the words he used, he says, 
Do not let your adornment be merely outward. He doesn't say, don't show. Like, he doesn't say, don't wear a cross. Show. Be, have your appearance be outward. Huh? Just not only. Not only. If that's your only focus, and you're missing something, in, so then we're hollow. It's just a shell. We're just like a, a Christian shell, like an egg that has nothing inside. But the idea is now we have to do both. So he says, merely don't let uh, let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be hidden person of the heart. That's why the church focuses on modesty when we go to church. Because nothing on the outside should, like, it doesn't matter. Right? Does it mean that the church is saying, don't go, don't do your hair before church? No, of course. Do whatever you need to do. But that's not your focus. The focus is the hidden part. Why does St. Peter call it hidden? Huh? You don't need other people to know about it. Exactly. If I hide something, no one's going to see it. No one's going to know. Why is St. Peter saying that? Why, why, why is that important? Why is the hiding important? Christ himself said, when you fast, go inside your room. <clears throat> Christ himself is focused on focusing on the inner man. That's why even he did so many retreats. He went up on a mountain. He went to uh, for the transfiguration and get salmon. All of these things. He focused on his inner man. He focused on himself inside. If we focus on ourselves, this is against what society tells us, by the way. This is, it's hard. That's why it's hard. Because society tells us you need to be as social as possible. Or make sure everybody knows what you're doing. Like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter. All of those, all, everything social media is tell people what you're doing. Don't be hidden from anything. Just make sure you, you, you know, like people know exactly what you're doing, where you are, every, every moment of every day. You know, St. Peter's telling us, no, no, focus on the hidden person of your heart. If we focus on that, the only person who can see it is God. And if we focus on that, the hidden part, if the hidden, if the inward man, if the inner man is holy, the outward is going to show. The outward is, is a result of the inside. We sometimes do the backwards. We, we focus on the outside. Like, somebody told me this early on, actually, in the monastery. Um, I was asking for, like, advice. And, he's, and, and he said, don't think that by putting on the black, you're, like, you're fine. You're good now. And he was very, very, like, he was a, a monk that was very, like, intense. And he was just trying to explain, like, focus more on the inside. Forget that you're wearing this. Like, don't feel like, okay, I'm good now. I'm a priest. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Leave me alone. I can do whatever I want. No. You actually have to do more yeah. now. 
And that idea is what he's saying here. Focus on the inner man. And he's saying the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. The quiet spirit doesn't mean silent. What, what does a quiet spirit mean? The gentle and quiet spirit. What comes to your mind? Huh? Okay. Humility. Peaceful. Not reactive. Not reactive. It's like Christ had a quiet and peaceful spirit to him. You can tell. You can see that. You feel that when you're with people who are living godly lives. That's why people go do trips to the monastery or to trips to, you know, uh, wherever. Any place where there's people who are living and dedicating their life to God, you feel this quiet spirit. He's saying it's very precious to God. God loves that. Does it mean you can't be a loud person? Be very loud. It can be very. It has nothing to do with voice control or what you you know. That that how much you talk, how much doesn't mean anything like that. But the quiet spirit is from within. More peaceful, humble. This quiet spirit is what he focuses on. Yeah. Oh. You sure? No. Um. When we talk about the, gentle, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, he says incorruptible beauty. A quiet spirit cannot lose its, its beauty. It's incorruptible. When we're living, uh, uh, when we have a quiet spirit, a, like it's a gentle and, and quiet spirit. It also is very loving. A gentle, quiet spirit is very loving. When you think of gentle, you think calming. It's important for us to strive for these things. These are the virtues that St. Peter talked about earlier and Christ talked about all the time. These, that Things that we should aim for. That we need to work on ourselves through these, on these things. Because why? He ends it by saying, these are very precious in the sight to the God. These are very precious. So if you, you want to like do something to please God, we need to focus on that. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. He's using Sarah as an example here. <coughs> Sarah submitted to Abraham, but why? She trusted God. Huh? She trusted God. Because she trusted God and what else? Because Abraham submitted to God. The example, Abraham is the, like, he's in the <coughs> Hall of Fame for his faith. His faith is what is so important. 
His life is so important. He didn't just talk about faith. He lived it. So when Sarah obeyed and submitted and called him (coughs) Lord, was it hard for her? No. It was not a struggle. And, 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 you know, when we're at weddings and people laugh at this part, it, to be honest, it bothers me. Because all you hear is, oh, I mean, just like our father, uh, just like uh, our mother Sarah called our father Abraham, uh, submitted to him and called him Lord. And everybody starts laughing, like, I'm not going to call you Lord. Don't frown in his presence. And all, all of those things. But the idea is... Abraham was living as like with God. He was living a godly life. So you trusted him. Same thing in, in, in anything. If if you trust the person you're with, if you love, if they love God, you know what? You're gonna do everything to leave, let yourself go and be with. Like you're gonna trust that person. You're gonna be with that person. In, in, in any in any way. Does that make sense? I think it's interesting that sort of like the sentence before it for in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husband. So he's tying trusting in God through the submission of, like you can't really have one without the other. Because you won't be able to submit if you don't trust God. Because God is gonna exactly. take care of you anyway. Exactly. So Sarah had two things. She trusted in God herself, like Nancy said. That was her own personal relationship with God. She trusted in God. But then she also submitted to Abraham because he trusted in God. It requires both. Like, there's this idea of like, oh, the woman, like I had a couple come to me and the, the, the husband came to me and said, Oh, she's very um, disobedient, and she doesn't submit. She's not. She's not submissive like the Bible says she should be. So I, I took a second, and I'm like, okay. Let me ask you, how's your relationship with God? And he's like, what does this have to do with what I just told you? I said. I'm telling her to do things, and she doesn't do it. I tell her to do this, and she doesn't do it. I tell her to do this, and she doesn't do it. And I said, okay, I'm asking you another question. Well, how is your relationship with God? Like, do you read the Bible? Do you come to church? Do you take communion? And he's like, I don't see the relationship between this and this. And I said, that's the whole thing. That's, you missed the point. She shouldn't submit. The submission from her end is based on one, her relationship with God, and two, your relationship with God. Does that make sense? Like it's a reaction. It's not a uh, your um, that the husband is above the wife, or more important, or has a, 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 a bigger role. No, it's not like a forced submission. It creates a positive cycle. Exactly. Exactly. And St. Paul and St. Peter are very clear in this. Remember, they wrote this different places, different times to different people. It's the same message. If you read this chapter and you read Ephesians chapter 5, it's beautiful how the, how the messages are, are almost exactly the same. 
talking about submission, talking about obedience. But it's all focused on Christ. There is no obedience without Christ. It doesn't mean anything. So, yes, thank you, Jack, for pointing that out. It's trusting in God first and then submitting. Because of her trust in God and her husband's trust in God, then it's easy to submit. Now, the husbands. Yeah. Sorry. No, go for it. Um, it seems, they seem kind of opposite of each other. Verse 2, when it says that the wife has a potential to win over the husband, accompanied by fear, by her church conduct, accompanied by fear. And then in 6, it says, and you are good to not be afraid and in terror. So they seem very contradicting. So when in verse 2 it says, so in verse 1, for example, when it says, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. This fear is the fear of God. Because they're not going to change, a husband will not, like, so it's one thing to see the wife and how she's living a godly life. So in doing so, the husband will hopefully see that and like just like in Matthew uh, uh, 5.16 when he says uh, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven this same concept is what he's talking about here but it, there's, a, there's an aspect of fear from the husband's side accompanied by fear that, this per, that the husband will like Okay, no, I I see her conduct. I need to to live for God. Yeah, but both have to work together. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? A little bit, yeah. What was the other verse? For verse six, saying like you'd be good following in Sarah's example, and it says, um, "Whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror." Yeah, so it's not it. afraid. Afraid in what? Like being bold and in Christ? Well, no. Afraid of with any terror. Like, what are you scared of? Like, there's no reason to be scared. Would Sarah ever fear that Abraham didn't have a good plan for her? Sure. So she, knowing that... Even when he did things that were wrong, she never fought it. Like, when he went, when they were passing through the city, and he's like, they're going to kill me? Tell them you're my sister. Remember that? And she didn't question it. She said, okay. He messed up, but she obeyed him because of his obedience to God. But now he's lying. He lives here, husband died, it's like lying, and God said, don't lie. Yeah. So the fathers of the church talk about that specific incident and they say basically he was wrong. There's no question. And, and everybody did, like, like David was a murderer, you know, and, and committed adultery. And like there's so many people in the Bible that we, we look up to. They were flawed. So Abraham messed up. But it shows... I think that story shows more about Sarah. That she was... Because of, she was with him all the way. Now... And God also 
didn't leave Abraham, even though he messed up. Exactly. Because he, like, kind of brought a curse on yes. Pharaoh for... Yes, for, for even thinking <clears throat> about doing anything. Yes, absolutely. So he protected him afterwards. The, it, it's a very confusing story, and I wish Sarah would say no, like... You know, whatever. She was his half-sister. So huh? She was his half-sister. So <laughs> Still, like, he was avoiding the truth. Yeah, yeah, he was avoiding the truth. He was kind of walking around the truth a little bit. But, but the submission, sometimes when we submit, we can feel fear. Like, I'm going to trust, like, let's say we, you know, whatever. Uh, like, Anything, anything we commit to, it, there's a fear like, oh my goodness, like, what if I made the wrong decision? He say, she's, he's saying here, do not. You're, when you're submitting to your husband, let go of fears. Be bold about it. Be bold. Be bold in your submiss- in submissiveness. Mm-hmm. Like, like, trust him fully without, like, being worried. The same way we trust in God. Now, the church is considered the wife of God, of Christ. So think of all, the church is submissive to God without any fear. Without any fear. Everything that we, we saw here, when we think of wives, we think of, you know, married women. Think of it as the church as well. Because the church is the bride of Christ. So this submission... That's why the church never, ever should go against what Christ teaches. We should always go back to that. Now, husbands, uh, verse 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. Dwell with them with understanding means just because the wife is being submissive, it doesn't mean you don't do it in an understanding way. Like, the worst thing anybody can do is do this. Why? Because. Because I said so. Makes no sense. How could you say that? So he says, no, with understanding. Because Christ never said, do this without explaining. He was always explaining. He brought stuff from the Old Testament. He taught by his actions. He taught by his words. Everything was full understanding. They, the disciples submitted to him. Not uh, they, they submitted to him blindly, but he also taught so it's both. Submission doesn't require understanding. But in Christianity, he's saying, husbands, teach. Teach your wife. Like, under, have the understanding there. And it's important for the couple to make decisions together. It's crucial. I, I, I don't think marriages last if they don't continue to make decisions in God, in Christ. Christ being the number one, but that they work together. So it's not a decision thing. It's more of like um, the submission is in the lifestyle 
understanding. Um, giving honor to the wife. Honor here is not just like words. It's not just like, oh, I honor my wife. But when you honor something, what do you think of? Loyalty. Loyalty, okay. What else? Lift up. When you're honoring someone, you're usually, they're usually on a stage, right? You're celebrating someone, they're on a platform. They're higher. That the husband lifts the wife and puts them on a pedestal. That's what Christ did to the church. He lifted the church. He continues to lift the church and guides the church. And the husband should always do that. This is not a one-time thing. It's not honor her on Mother's Day. It's not honor her on her birthday. It's not honor her. Like, it's honor constantly. Everybody listen? <laughs> <laughs> um, as to the weaker vessel, uh, I always had a hard time with this part. Because it's not a matter of what's weaker and stronger, like the husband is stronger versus the wife. I think there's two things when it comes to this. One, it's a cultural understanding, like weaker. Like back then, it's not like women were in the army and, and it was just like, you know, the men went out to war and this and that. So I think that played a role. Two, Eve came out of Adam. I think that also is what St. Peter is discussing. Like Adam was the first and Eve came out of him. So the weaker vessel, it's not like the thrown away vessel, the, the weaker, like lower. It's not lesser. And I think that's very important to clear. I think this is more of a cultural... It's um, not referring to the next part of the verse? And well, it continues. So he says, he says, as being heirs together of the grace of life. So notice, he's saying, being the weaker vessel, but they're heirs together. So it's not referring to, the, to that verse, but it, like, it, it's like he says that point, but he's like, he, he, he quickly responds and says, they're heirs together um, of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the word together here is very important because the sacrament of marriage, the two become one. Two become one in Christ. In Christ. Are they two separate people? Yes. But they have the same focus, same goal. They're one in every way. I'll end, uh, and I'll end with uh, a quick story. When I, when I got married, the, the hardest or the, 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 the hardest thing for me at that time, and I shared it with people before, was there had to be a switch in my brain that I'm no longer thinking about myself. Only. So I remember the first like week after the honeymoon, after, you know, we're back, everything's normal, we're working, and I, I'm driving home from work, and I stop by, and I get in and out, and I go home. And, and this is like a weekend. 
and and I'm like eating and and Maggie comes home later and she's like oh she calls me on her way home and I'm already home and she's like um, what, what, what are we eating today? And I'm like, oh, I'm not hungry. <laughs> and they're like, she's like, why? I'm like, I, I just ate. She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and that was it. That was a phone call. We came home. There was more of a more of a lively discussion. Um, but it was it was completely my fault. I had to I had to adjust and think. No, no. It's no longer two. When we're engaged, it's two. I, I, I mean, like, I'm making food, I'm buying food for myself, like, uh, you know, I'm taking care of myself, she's taking care of herself, we go out to eat together, that's a separate story. But that switch was hard for me. And I remember sitting with my father confession and talking to him, and I'm like, what do I do? He's like, remember the sacrament. Remember that it's two became one. Two become one. So this is what he's talking about here. He's saying, um, together, being, uh, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. But together, living in his grace. The grace is what makes us one. And glory be to God forever. Amen.